And good morning. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Luke, and I'm excited to teach today. Uh, we've been going through a series called Jesus's People, which is a study through the book of Acts. So um, if you brought a Bible with you, we'd love for you to turn to Acts 17, the 17th chapter of Acts. That's where we're at right now. Very cool passage today, probably one of my favorites in the New Testament. Um, and while I was putting this together this week, uh, this phrase came to my mind, and I, I have not been able to get it out. It was real popular whenever I was leaving high school, very popular when I was in college. Probably some of you still rocking this phrase, still think it's popular. And it is, don't start something, won't be. Don't start something, won't be nothing, right? Popular in pop culture, not as popular today. The thing is, is I found a definition for this in the Urban Dictionary, which isn't really a dictionary, okay? <laughs> On the credibility scale, it is far down below Wikipedia. This is what they say, though. It's pretty good. A warning to others that if an altercation is to be avoided, then they should cease acting in a provocative manner. <laughs> My grandpa used to say it, let a sleeping dog lie, right? Don't start something, won't be nothing. This is the motto I rode to most of my life, most of my life. I, I wanted to live in such a way that if I left things alone, things would leave me alone, right? I didn't want to stir up trouble around me. This would mean that I would have to let injustice happen all around me, okay? That meant letting people do what they want, letting people say what they want, letting people damage each other, damage themselves, whatever they wanted to do. I was going to keep out. I was going to keep my head down. I was going to be quiet. I was going to live my life and take care of number one. For most of my life, I lived in this pathetically forgettable, invisible life where I just looked out for my own kingdom, my own plan, my own life plan, my own GPA, making sure that I was always going to be taken care of. And for me, that meant keeping my head down and getting through life. I want you to envision, just for a moment, a big tractor tire lying on its side on the ground, right? Because in about a thousand CrossFit boxes all across the nation, it's obligatory to have one of those. There's a tractor tire and gyms all over, and you're supposed to walk up, using proper form, of course, grab it with both hands and flop it over. And I remember the very, 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 very first time I saw anything like this many years ago, I remember looking at it thinking, why would anyone do that? That's the craziest thing. Looking at one myself, thinking, why would I want to start a fight with that? It's just going to hurt me. Well, I mean, it's fine laying there. It's not asking for me to flip it over. It's not demanding to be flipped over. I mean, there's got to be a reason to do it. I'm not going to do it just for doing it. Don't start nothing. Won't be nothing. This is the way I've lived. And I desperately needed the gospel to change my heart. And when the gospel found me as a junior in college, it did. It totally changed my heart, and it changed my heart to where I wasn't just a better or an improved version of being dead Luke, but I was a different person altogether. In fact, I was so different that my parents, true story, my parents thought I was in a cult. See, I'd grown up in the church as not being a Christian, just a well-behaved young man. But then when I left and went to another church, radically got saved and radically changed. And so all of a sudden around the house, I started seeing books left out, how to know if your son is in a cult. How to leave a cult, you know? None of them read, of course, all of them brand new, left in, you know, key places on this table and that table because my parents were freaked out. And they weren't freaked out because I wore all black clothing 
or burn candles in my room. And if I did, it's because my room stunk back then. But not like cult candles, you know? The reason they, they thought I was caught up in something nefarious is because my attitude changed. My heart changed. I wasn't just a different version of myself. I was a totally different kid. It must have been freaky for them. I was a totally different kid. I quit fooling around with girls all the time. I quit building my own kingdom, worrying about myself all the time. It changed the way I wrote checks. It changed the way I set up my calendar. It changed the things that came out of my mouth. It changed the stuff that came in my eyes. It changed the things that came in my ears. It even changed my personality. I went from skulking in the shadows, keeping my head down and being this wallflower, scared to even say a thing to anyone. And I became someone that would start preaching open air on a college campus of all places. God, only God does things like that. Only the gospel does things like that. And that is what the gospel does. It totally changes us. It wasn't just a different creation. It was a new creation. And this is what the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Because the old has passed on, and so the new has come. This is what the gospel does. It flips tires. It flips everything upside down. It turns everything upside down. Last week, when we looked at the book of Philippi, we saw something really cool, right? Uh, Just to rewind, if you weren't here, Paul and Silas were drug out, thrown before this kangaroo court, and right before they were rotted, right before they were beat, before everybody, there was an accusation that came to them, and it was that these men have greatly disturbed the city, which is pretty cool. They greatly disturbed the institution, the city, and today we actually see a bigger accusation, and by God's grace as a church, we could get there. And it is that this is part of the church that has flipped the world upside down. Flipped the world upside down. But I want to be fair today. I'm going to be totally fair today. So I am first going to submit just a few pointers, a few application points on how to not turn the world upside down. Okay? I think it's only fair. After all, as I've said, I've spent more of my life not provoking change around me. I've spent more of my life not flipping the tires in front of me. It's only fair that I at least tell you how to do that. Because I'm here to tell you, friends, it is possible. It's very possible for you today to leave this room and to leave Knoxville the same. Year after year after year after decade after century, it could be the same exact city day after day. It's possible. I'm going to tell you how to do it. Let's look at Acts 17, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord for us today. It's going to change our hearts, I believe. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned, keyword, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving, another couple keywords, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Okay, let's pause right there because there's already problems. If you want to leave Knoxville alone, we're already bumping into problems. You, You really can't pay attention to this passage. You can't follow it. Because it's leading us in a different direction. 
Application point number one on how to not turn the world upside down is to just stay very quiet and fade into the background noise. Just be quiet. There's a lot of opinions swirling around. Philosophies, ideas. Just be silent. Hit the mute button. Let, let people say what they're going to say. Let them think what they're going to think. You don't have to do anything, especially if you want Knoxville to stay the same over and over. Then it ignore, just ignore what you're seeing around you. Don't proclaim. Don't explain. Don't reason. And whatever you do, don't persuade. <laughs> don't persuade. Don't do any of this, and you are for sure going to be comfortable because the mob won't yell at you. The mob won't look at you with that smirk on their face like you're pathetic and you haven't caught up with the modern day. The mob and the masses won't look at you and judge you down their noses because you're not saying anything. And if you don't start something, won't be nothing. It's true. After all, especially persuading, it just feels rude, doesn't it? It feels rude. It's not real politically correct, and it's definitely not Southern to try to persuade someone away from what they believe to believe what you believe, right? I mean, you might get away with just proclaiming something. This is what I think about God. This is what I think about marriage. This is what I think about... You could get away with proclaiming it, but <laughs> you cannot persuade because that's going too far. It's too rude. Step number two that we already see in this one little short passage on how to not turn the world upside down is also just to drift around. Don't commit. And whatever you do, under no circumstances should you join anything. Don't do it. We see here in verse 4 that after some of these people were persuaded, they joined Paul and Silas, right? Now, what were they joining? Well, Paul and Silas were planting churches. They weren't starting fraternities or motorcycle clubs or whatever else. They were starting apostolic churches, just like we're still doing today. Apostolic churches, and they were joining these things. But listen, if you want Knoxville to stay the same year after year after year, then you cannot follow this. You've got to push away from it because it's going to require heavy lifting because it's going to require you doing life with people that aren't like you, that can be awkward and heavily inconvenient. It means living life on life with people that are very different. Fact check me later to see if I'm wrong in this, but the last few passages, just the last couple that we've gone through in the book of Acts, this is who has joined the church. We have slaves, soldiers, Greeks, Jews, men, women, old, young, black, not black, wealthy, poor, white collar, blue collar, no collar, just a whole different assortment of people. And the only thing that makes them common at all is the gospel. Take the gospel out, though, and it's just heavily inconvenient. If you take the gospel out as the anchor that ties all of this diversity together, you have a long elevator ride. Awkward. Inconvenient, like the DMV. Everyone just staring at each other, really hoping that that door opens really quick so they could get out of there. Because what do you say? We don't have anything in common. This is what this means community will mean something that you have to work for, not something that is gift-wrapped and handed to you. If you want community, if you want to join, well, listen, you're going to have to clock in for that. And I know what it's like because I'm just like you. I'm not different from you just because I'm up here. I am you. It, am I right? You're in a, in a living room or at work and you're sipping coffee 
looking at someone else talking, sipping coffee, and they're looking at you, and they're telling you how their day was, or they're telling you a a little bit of their life, or they're telling a funny story, and in your mind, you're thinking, hmm, we'll never be friends. (laughs) I'm going to smile, and I'm going to endure this, but you will not be my bestie. Not you and me. Not going to happen. Why? Because they're very different. And listen, I haven't even gotten... I haven't even gotten to how hard it is to work through problems. I'm just talking about how hard it is to have a conversation. I mean, when we talk about having problems and slamming and colliding into each other as community, as we join to one another, when I talk about that, well, come on, it's easier to just pick up and go somewhere else than to to, to do the heavy lifting of working through a problem. They're ticked off at me. I'm ticked off at them. They hurt my feelings. I'm upset. It's just easier to leave. You you could go somewhere else where no one knows you. You could start all over. After all, it probably will never happen again, right? Offense and things like that. This is interesting because there are repercussions and price tags to joining yourself to a body of believer that are even beyond relationships. Here we're about to see in this passage, I'm about to read about Jason who most scholars believe is a young upstart in the Christian community, a young leader, kind of like what we saw in Lydia last week, because he, too, is very hospitable, opening up his house, right? and then we see the church kind of coming from that house. And what happens is, is the city gets so ticked off at what Paul and Silas are doing, they go looking for them, but they can't find them. So what do they do? They grab the calm group leader, next best thing. Drag Jason in front of the same type of kangaroo court and say, or turning the world upside down. So what the court does is they impose a sort of bond on Jason where he has to pay money, a lot of it. And what the court is telling him is, you will pay us the money. And if Paul and Silas contribute any more problems to the city, we're keeping the money. But if everything stays clean, you can have the money back. It's like a bond system, right? This is why you see Paul later on in 1 Thessalonians, I think it's chapter 4, saying something like, I wanted to come back and hang out with you guys, but Satan has prevented me. Most scholars believe that he was trying to help Jason keep that money for the church, right? That's not written in there. That's just what a lot of scholars believe. But if you want to keep holding on to what you have, your time, your talent, your treasure, your privacy, if you want to keep holding on to that stuff, you, listen, under no circumstances can you join anything. Nothing. You have to drift. You have to be noncommittal. That's the only way to keep yours yours. Don't start something, won't be nothing. Right? Let's look at the next passage. Verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, here it is, so cool, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they were all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another King Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Step number three in how to not turn the world upside down. When the mission gets tough, you got to get going. Quit while you're ahead. If there's any resistance, it probably wasn't meant to be. That's how you can not turn a city upside down. Because listen, turning the city, the world, upside down will build mobs. It'll build mobs and they'll hate you for it. 
they'll beat you for it. If you want Knoxville to stay the same old Knoxville, year after year after year after year, if that's what you want, then press and push, but as soon as you hit a wall, back off. Back off. I mean, give it the old college try, okay? But as soon as you meet some heavy resistance, it probably wasn't meant to be. You can always tell yourself that. It sounds a little bit spiritual anyway, right? After all, let's look at what Paul and Silas are doing here. They obviously didn't get the memo. They push, they push, they get chased from city to city to city. Listen, this is just days ago they got beaten. We talked about the beating last week. This is just a few days later. They didn't get a sunburn in Philippi. They got thrashed within an inch of being dead, locked in the stocks. They didn't get the memo. Look, they're still doing it. And look what's happening. Now they got to run again. They got to run again. You can't let this passage lead you. If you are wanting to not turn a city upside down, you can't let it happen. You have to let the sleeping dog just lie. Okay? Verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word of God with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Verse 13, But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too. Of course they did. Agitating and stirring up the crowds. Verse 14, key verse for us right now. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Application point number four on how to not turn the world upside down. Never leave a bestie behind. Never leave a friend behind, ever. Paul is doing that right now. It seems dumb. I mean, friends like that don't grow on trees. These are friends that you bleed with. These are friends you bond with. These are friends where you can speak in comfortable ways with and it just become effortless. And he's just leaving them for the sake of mission? Doesn't sound very wise to me. I mean, he's ending up all alone because he couldn't quit persuading and persisting and starting new things and flipping tires all around him. He couldn't stop it. And now, look, he's all alone in a big, strange city, Athens of all places. Some of you have already felt some of this as we start new calm groups. You have friends. You're used to doing life with them, but mission comes calling, and you have to start something new. And now your rhythms don't line up like they used to, and you're not as close as you used to be. Wait till we plant another church. There are going to be families in here that are your bestie, and you won't get to see them as often as you used to. You might disciple somebody or mentor somebody in the church, and it might throw just enough of a wrench in your schedule where you don't get to see your old friends as much as possible. Let me tell you what mission will do to your friendships. It will alter them. Can't let that happen. Can't listen to this passage when it comes to that. Don't do anything that's going to change the structure of your friendships. Don't do it. As you can see, there are tons of ways to leave a city untouched. Many ways to leave Knoxville in a forgettable fashion where there's no change at all. And we all know this because we live 
according to a lot of those application points that I just read off. I know I do. That's why we're so easy to write down, because I know what it feels like to stand back, skulk around, and look out for number one. Let the city flip itself over. I'm not going to lift a finger. Don't start nothing, won't be nothing. Beating in all of our chests because we don't want to disturb this city. We don't want to walk alongside our hero king who's flipping tires all around us. We don't want to provoke change because that change will come right back in our face. And listen, I've been a little bit silly in this exercise, obviously. I've been a little bit silly in this, but I hope you see by looking at this, maybe a little bit of yourself, as I saw of myself putting it together. I hope you've seen a little bit because it helps to be honest, doesn't it? It helps to be honest where we just kind of sit back. Don't start nothing. Won't be nothing. It's hard for us to see a whole city flipped upside down because we have a hard time seeing our living rooms flipped upside down (laughs) or our neighborhoods flipped upside down. Sometimes it's hard for us to see our own hearts flipped upside down. We can't get vision for something like this, so it helps to be honest. But here is some good news for all of us who are passive and silent, we have a gospel. And this gospel paints a portrait, a picture of a better king who didn't just leave a best friend behind. You see, Jesus' highest value above all treasures was the tight relationship he had with his father. He didn't just leave a gang of buds he grew up with and went to high school with. He left the triunity, the fellowship of the triunity, to come with us where we would be awkward and we would be inconvenient and we would cost him and he would benefit us. He was a good king for us. It's good news for us. He wasn't clingy in, in, in refusal. Let mission do what mission's going to do without me because I've got what I need right here. He sacrificed for mission so that God's glory would be pronounced. We have a king who joined himself to a people that are very different from him. He membered himself to a very different people, right? Because we are pretty awkward. We're awkward with each other. Come on, how do you think it is with God? We're inconvenient with each other. How, How weird do you think that? I mean, no one in this room would be excited and joy to hang out with someone that treats us the same way we treat God on a good day. Like when we're handling God on a good day for us, We're still a not very good friend. We don't make good friends to God. And yet he races to us, embraces us, and draws us in. This is the good news for us. This is good news. We have a king who is not silent. But he proclaims things to us. He speaks to us. In the midst of all of our stupid ideas... And our boneheaded philosophies and these handcrafted religions that we invent ourselves, it would be easy for God to stand back with arms folded and do what you and I would do, which is to say, hmm, you guys are morons. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to be silent. I'm just going to destroy you and start over. But he doesn't do that. He says, you guys are being moronic. Here's a better message. Here's a better story. And the good thing about his story and his message, punchline, we get a new family. We get a new king. We're in a new kingdom. We have a new heart. We have a new body. We have a new mission. We have a new everything. That's the punchline of the gospel. The gospel for us, the gospel for us is when Jesus pushed and found restriction and found resistance, he didn't stop and say, well, probably wasn't meant to be. I did the best I could. Maybe someone else will come along and pick up where I left off because I did such a great job. He didn't do that. He just said, you know what? I'm going to keep pushing. 
It cost him. And because it cost him, and because there was a divine swap on the cross, that what was meant for you and me, he received on himself to bring us to a place we didn't deserve to be at. Because all of that happened, our hearts are flipped upside down. It flips our heart upside down. How cool is this? And when that happens, it gives us new hungers. I don't know about you, because I don't know your story so much, but whenever I became a Christian in, in those days from back in college, whenever everything was so new to me, I still sinned, and I still went back to some old sins, but I knew I was a new creation because my hungers were different. I might find myself misbehaving again with that same old thing again, but my hunger was for something different, where earlier my hunger was just to misbehave. Now my hunger was to follow Jesus, have my, my affections nurtured for Jesus, to abide in Jesus. My hunger has changed. This is important for us. Why? Well, think about it. Let's use close friends for an, just an example, a quick example. Close friends are awesome. If you don't have some, get some. <laughs> close friends are great, and I have them. But because I'm comfortable with what Jesus gives me, I don't break those relationships. This is how they're broken. Listen, if you're not comfortable and get your comfort from how Jesus loves you, you will require each other to give that love to you. So, you know, Sean. Sean's a good friend of mine. I love Sean a lot, right? Okay? So if I come to Sean and I demand that he loves me perfectly, instead of God loving me perfectly and me being okay with that, I will break this thing eventually. I will require and demand him give me comfort by liking me a certain way. And when I've done that, I've made a little Jesus out of this relationship, something that will save me but never can, and end up breaking it. But I'm able to have friends in here, close friends, that they can say things to me imperfectly. They can have a bad day. They can mishandle me, drop me, offend me. They can do those things, and it doesn't break me in half because that relationship never saved me anyway. I was comfortable with what God was giving me not requiring them handle me a certain way. You see, peace is nice. Comfort is nice. It is, but we don't have to be passive to get it. We don't have to be silent to get it. We don't have to be safe and sound in our own bubble-wrapped cocoon to get it. We can start things, flip tires, and find God's comfort to be satisfying. It's important for us. Listen, anything, anything, friends, anything, you demand to give you peace and comfort that is not Jesus, that has become an idol, and you will break it. Is it a job? You'll break it. Is it friendship? You'll break it. Is it your marriage? You'll break it. Are you expecting your kids and demanding your kids to make you feel in a comfortable way? You'll break them. It's a bad Jesus. It doesn't make a good Jesus. But when you have a church whose hearts have been disturbed, you will have a city that becomes disturbed. When you have a church who has hearts that have been flipped upside down, you will end up with a city that has been flipped upside down. And this is good news for us. So what I'm going to do is give you a couple quick, quick applications before we end on how to turn the world upside down. Okay? First of all, we need to be persuasive. We need to persuade. That's a key word in this passage that we read earlier. We need to take the time. We need to have patience. We need to be clear. We need to be informed. We need to be thorough, gentle, and truthful. And we need to persuade people. Why? Because people believe dumb things. Just like you did. We believe dumb things and then someone loved us enough to bring us life when we were just the walking dead. And we were persuaded. We need to be persuasive. This passage shows us that Paul did this. He proclaimed, reasoned, explained, and proved. 
And because of this, people were persuaded and they joined. You see, Paul proclaimed it first. And sometimes that works. Sometimes just the proclaimed gospel is enough for people to just radically become Christians. Sometimes that happens. And we see this happening right here. He says, this is the gospel. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And surely, as happened in other churches, you know people became Christians off of that. He did this sort of thing often. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, you don't need to turn there. It'll be up on the screen. He says this to another church he planted. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here it is, the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And people became Christians. All he did was just say it. Just proclaim it. And the Holy Spirit came in and changed those people. But sometimes proclamation's not enough. Sometimes you need to explain, prove, reason, unpack. Sometimes it takes that. And I love that here. He reasoned with some of these people. It says right here, he reasoned with them from these scriptures, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And this implies that there was some discourse back and forth. Because earlier we saw that he was there for three Sabbaths. That means no less than three weeks. So there was a process where they're probably giving him questions, and most likely he's answering them. And he's being very thorough, and he's helping them see things just a little bit differently. He's reasoning. He's explaining. He's unpacking. It's not just a monologue. And when we do the same thing, we have to be clear. We have to be thorough. We need to be informed. We need to be ready for questions. And when we get questions, we need to honor them by bringing them to the Bible. Honor them for that. And I know the first thing that jumps up in your mind, which is, I don't know enough. Right? I don't know enough to do that. Luke, I know enough to proclaim. I don't know enough to reason or explain. I don't know enough to prove. I just know enough how to say. I know we we all have sound bites. Jesus died for your sins. That's the most common sound bite we hear, right? We all have sound bites. I think we can parrot enough to proclaim something, but when it comes to reasoning and explaining, we feel real inadequate, don't we? I have grown in my gospel comprehension, my biblical literacy since I became a Christian. I have grown, but the steepest part of my growth curve, if it were charted, would be when I first became a Christian in college. Because I have all these peers, professors, bosses, dudes at the bar asking me questions about why I believe what I believe, and I just got tired of saying, I don't really know. (laughs) So I'd go and I'd read the Bible and I'd study and pray and study, and then I wouldn't be sure and I'd ask a pastor and he'd help me go back to the Word, and I might read a book or two or 50. I would do whatever it took to understand, whatever it took to understand what it was I believed. That's the steepest part of my growth curve, not seminary. It was when I was having to go to the word because of the phrase, I don't know enough. First Peter 3.15, we see this. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, I love this. This is where most people don't continue reading. Very helpful. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, not if, (laughs) you will be. So when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Gentleness and respect. Do you know how to persuade somebody? Do you know how to be clear, thoughtful, informed? Do you know how to explain? Do you know how to reason? Are you patient? Can you be clear? 
Can you persist? Friends, this is how you turn a city upside down. It's how we flip worlds upside down. Can you see that it's not rude? We're talking about people who are dying. Their hearts are of stone. They're dying. It's not rude to persuade them away from death. It's not. It's beautiful. Some of you, you have people coming to your mind right now, just as we're talking about it, right? You have people coming to your mind. Are you being persuasive with that person? You need to talk to the Lord about that today. Today, you need to talk to the Lord about that person. Begin praying for that person. Begin asking God for opportunities to be more persuasive. Some of you, no one is coming to your mind, and that's because you don't even really know lost people. You're not a friend of the city. You just have friends in the city, which means you don't really know anyone that is far from Christ. And I would say for you, you'd want to start placing yourself in pools and puddles in the smoking sections of this city to where you're getting to know those who are far from Christ and it not be weird so that you can be persuasive as a missionary. We don't just persuade, we have to commit. Step two in changing a world or seeing it turned upside down, we have to commit. We need to belong somewhere. And listen, this is not Luke's attempt to get you to join and be a member of Legacy Church. This is Luke's attempt to get you to join a church. It's a church. Member yourself to a body. Today at 3 o'clock, we have our first partners meeting. We've never had one before. We're super excited about this. In fact, if you're a partner, you haven't signed up, you can still come, still take you. So love to have you there. But we're going to talk about where the dollars are going. We're going to talk about where we're at, where we're headed. We're going to field questions. We're going to celebrate what God has done. We're going to look at what, where we might have some struggles up in the future. We're going to talk about how we as pastors are covering you and how you are responsible for each other. We're going to talk about the beauty of, of just the church and the responsibility we all have to each other as we belong to each other. Whether you never come back here again or you come every day forever, you need to belong somewhere. Find a church that honors that. Find a church that honors strong partnership and belonging. Don't go to a place that could care less if you're there from week to week, won't ever hold you accountable, won't care if you're gone. Friends, that's not a church. Don't do that. Find a place that will be responsible for you where you can be responsible for those around you. Super important. And this is what I can promise you when this happens. The people that you're around, that you're belonging to, they won't be like you. They don't have anything in common with you, really. I mean, look around, right? You're different. They're different. They're different. And yet, a gospel-formed community, that's what it's going to take to flip this city upside down. That's what it's going to take. You see, God changes cities. And this, some of you might struggle with this statement. You can always email later if you do. God changes cities through his local church. Through the local church, God's spirit inhabits Christians in his church to change a city. And when the city, far from God, looks at a church that's a mismatched tapestry where no one really looks like they belong with each other, then it sits up and takes notice. But if the lost world looks at a nation of shoppers, well, then it's just going to yawn and go back to sleep. If I could just be frank. And I know the struggle with this, and it is tough. 
I've heard this for 18 years, ever since I started in the ministry. I've heard the phrase, but Luke, this is tough. I cannot connect. I can't connect. I'm not connecting with people. Connect is always the key word. Usually coming from people who have been around for longer than two or three years. I'm having a hard time connecting in this group, in this church, in this calm group, in this ministry, in this class, in this whatever. I can't connect. No one gets me. I don't get anyone else. Right? But listen, can we be honest? Look at the people that you do connect with. Was that built overnight? Was that built in three months? I mean, I've had people that I have cried with who've caught me in big mistakes. We've bled together. That's what forms relationships. But it can't be shrink-wrapped and just given to you. You gotta clock in for that. You gotta work for that. The vast majority of people that tell me, and it's a very, very real concern, the one of connecting, not to belittle that. I can't connect is the hunger of your heart saying, I desire a connection on a deep level, which is God-given, okay? But usually it comes from people that have been around for like less than a year. (laughs) Listen, if you got it in less than a year, it's not really that deep. It's not. Connecting is not a church deal. It's not that this church connects people and that church doesn't. It's that a lot of times we want it to come to us and we don't want to pay the price to create it. We don't want to invest. We just look around and what we do is we look for people that look like us, that we would find it easy to talk to, but that's not connecting. You can connect with people that are very different from you at a deep heart level that is meeting that need somewhat. A lot of times it's the people that look just like you that are not connecting with you. They're just agreeing with you. That is not community. That is affinity. Very different thing. Very different thing. You have to put in the work. You've got to clock in for that. You've got to commit. That's how you flip a city. And then lastly, we need to persist. You've got to press and press and push in mission and press in mission. And whenever you get some resistance, that is the signal that you're on the right track. And you keep pressing and you keep pushing over and over again. Remember, when the gospel is totally understood, it's seditious. That's, that's what these apostles were being accused of when they were brought before the court, is they're being seditious. Sedition is speaking or writing against the ruling leader in order to topple them or pull them down. And you know what? They're right. It is a seditious message. On two ways. One, God is forming a kingdom that will be prevalent and above all kingdoms of the earth. (laughs) Wait around. We're going to see that. That's going to happen, right? It will overthrow all other kingdoms. But secondly, it's seditious against the kingdom of our own heart. We already have a throne. We're already sitting on it. We've got a big crown on our head. And Jesus comes into our life and says, no, 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 no. I'm flipping that over. I'm the king. I'm going to take that crown and put it on my head. Well, that's sedition. And whenever you preach a seditious message to people who already have their own kingdoms arranged a certain way, you're going to get blowback. It's provoking people. It's very difficult. This is what the gospel tells us. And whenever you do that, the going will get tough. Mission has never been just handed to us. Where is this happening right now for you? Where are you getting the most resistance and blowback in your life? Think about it. It's a very real temptation to just go hands off, isn't it? You begin telling the gospel to a coworker and they give you the middle finger. Or you talk to a neighbor and now all of a sudden they don't want to talk to you anymore. Or maybe you had a moment with somebody and they quit returning your texts or whatever. 
it's resist. Don't, don't you want to just kind of stop and just have things go back the way it was and just kind of make it clean again? You got to keep pushing. You got to keep pressing. Some of you are struggling with this, and it's a very real struggle. And I'm there with you, by the way. I think it's in all of us. But I have to say that persistence flips the world upside down. Think of these apostles fleeing from city to city with a bloody back, beaten, running out of friends pretty quick, running out of money even faster, and they're persisting. Go ahead and stand with me. We're going to finish right here. The team's going to come up here in just a moment. But there is a prevalent feeling in our hearts, and I just want to address that just for a moment. The prevalent feeling is this. I need comfort. And I'm with you. I'm in your club. I'm the president of that fan club. I need comfort. We need comfort. I need things to make me comfortable. Here's the answer. No, you don't. We already have comfort. His name is Jesus. Jesus brings a cosmic comfort to us so we don't require people and situations to make us comfortable anymore. We don't have to have it. We don't have to have it. Every day we ignore mission, it won't bring us peace and comfort. It just lies and tells you that it will. It's an idol, this idol of comfort. It always overpromises and underdelivers, And it has you fooled saying that if you abdicate mission and give it up, then you can finally have peace and comfort. But that never happens, does it? Never happens. We have comfort. He is a king. We don't have to shoplift our comfort from silence and passivity and skulking in the shadows and looking out for number one. We don't have to do that anymore. So of all the things that you've heard today, where I'm going to challenge you is to look at your life and see where it is that you are most comfortable, where it is that you are most excited to steal comfort for yourself that you've placed above Jesus. That's where we're going to ask you to turn today. And and someone's going to come out in a moment and lead you through the last part of this service. But as we pray, I want you to be thinking about what that is, okay? Father, I thank you for being so sweet to us, for leaving what was precious to you behind for our sake, for pushing when most of us wouldn't push, for speaking when most of us would be silent, for joining yourself to a people that are unlovely and unjoinable. You did everything you're asking us to do, God. You are the first missionary to a broken world. So as we are missionaries, we don't have to follow anything other than your model. You've shown us what to do. And not only that, God, not only do you show us what to do, you've given us the freedom to do it. No longer, as God's people, do we have to fight and claw and steal and siphon from every little weird source around us to make us feel a little bit more comfortable or at peace. Because you've given it to us freely. Even in the midst of war, even in the midst of blowback, even in the midst of isolation, even in the midst of being laughed at, derided, mocked, you can bring us comfort even in the middle of that. Let that be where we feast. And Father, I know there are people here now that their heart still needs to be flipped, just like mine was. Totally new person, not a better dead person, not an altered corpse, but a brand new creation. And Father, you are very good. You are surgical, wise, and beautiful at changing hearts. And I pray that you change hearts in here today. Father, I ask that you would provoke hearts and flip hearts today. And Lord, lead us to be a church that lives as a people with upside-down hearts. Lord, even the leadership of this church, that we would be leaders 
that would have upside-down hearts, with households with upside-down hearts. Lord, that we wouldn't export something to this city that is just boringly predictable, that we wouldn't export something to Knoxville that's just not helpful at all. Lord, we love you and we thank you. You're so good to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.